and welcome to TCDLA Law Podcast. Our hosts are David Glenn of Lubbock and Grant Shiner of Houston. Our producer is Aaron Diaz of San Antonio. We are criminal defense lawyers. Let me just say at the outset that David Gwynn had a conflict and he's unable to join us. But Aaron, you're going to pinch hit for David. Is that okay? Uh, I'll sure try. Those are some big shoes to fill, but uh, hopefully I can get by. Those are definitely some big shoes to fill, but I'm confident you can do it. Today's topic will be notice of extraneous conduct in state criminal cases, how to request it, what happens if you don't get it, what should you do about it. And there are some uh, cases that have been around for a while, but there's a brand new one from the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals that really broadens the kind of notice that defense attorneys are entitled to when they go to trial in cases involving extraneous conduct. So we ready to dive right into it? Let's do it. Okay, so here is how it all starts, which is, let's say you have a client who has some extraneous conduct in his past. Could be a prior conviction, could be a prior accusation, just maybe an arrest that didn't lead to a conviction, or it might be some uncharged conduct. The state has a lot of different theories under which they can admit that kind of evidence. They can admit it sometimes in case in chief. Sometimes they can use it in sentencing. Usually they can use it in sentencing. And there are even special kinds of cases like those involving sexual assault under Texas Code of Criminal Procedure 38.37. And in each of those instances, there is a way for the criminal defense lawyer to request notice and evidence from the state. So, Aaron, uh, you're a fairly new practitioner. What, what pops into your mind when you hear about these notice provisions? Uh, is that you better get, it, get them in quick. Otherwise, you uh, wind up with nothing. Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail squarely on the head here, which is when do you get the notice in? Now, um, I, at your firm, I don't know how they do it. I, I think there's kind of been a trend towards getting them in at the very beginning of the case. I send a letter to opposing counsel, to the prosecutor, uh, saying this office represents Mr. Client, and we're requesting notice under Article 3914, that's a Texas discovery statute, requesting discovery under Article 3914, uh, requesting notice under 404B, that's uh, the rule of evidence relating to other crimes, wrongs, and acts. Uh, I request um, notice of Rule 609F, that's the notice provision for impeachment with prior convictions. Uh, I ask for 3707, that's the punishment statute, we call the sentencing statute in Texas. And I usually throw in there, and if applicable, Article 3837. That's relating to sexual offenses. And if you've got like a robbery case or a DWI case, obviously it doesn't apply, but it doesn't, you, you don't get penalized for asking for it. So in your first letter that you send out in the case, you should ask for all of those things. And thanks to a court of criminal appeals case that just came out, you should also ask for the following. You should ask for, quote, material, anything that is, quote, material to any matter involved in the action, unquote. Because in a brand new case called uh, Ralph Dwayne Watkins versus the state of Texas, which came from the Court of Criminal Appeals on March 3rd, 2021, we now not only get notice of extraneous conduct, but you get the underlying evidence that supports it too. And that is a statutory right that goes beyond the Constitution. So it's a really good tool to have in your toolbox. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we do the same thing here at the firm. Let's get that notice in quickly. And it's usually like you said, an omnibus kind of motion that outlines all of those provisions. That way state can, we can't say later on, well, we didn't get anything from you. Well, you have it there um, as proof. Sure. So uh, a couple of things there. Um, now, it's important for anybody listening to this thing that you not file it in the form of a motion. You're entitled to these things. If you file uh, a motion for impeachment evidence or a motion for notice of extraneous conduct, then you may forfeit your right to those things if the judge doesn't rule on the motion and grant you the motion. So it's just a request for notice. And uh, the only thing you have to do is one, make the request in writing, and two, be able to prove that the other side received it. I know it's really old fashioned, but you can, uh, you can fax it to your district attorney's office and keep the fax receipt. What we do is we uh, fax it, keep the fax receipt. We um, email it to a prosecutor if there's a particular prosecutor assigned to the case when we first appear. And uh, we also file a copy with the clerk so that it makes it into the court's file. I have never, since Article 3914 was revised uh, beginning uh, September of 2015, have had a judge tell me I didn't get my notice in the right way or have a prosecutor deny having received it. Okay, so what I'd like to do is uh, go over the statutes that I've mentioned, which are rules of evidence and uh, code statutes, and just uh, read out what they say briefly so we know what kind of notice we're interested in here. So we'll begin with Texas Rule of Evidence 404B, subsection 2, uh, which talks about permitted uses of extraneous conduct evidence and notice in criminal cases. The action part of it says, quote, on timely request by a defendant in a criminal case, the prosecutor must provide reasonable notice before trial that the prosecution intends to introduce such evidence other than that arising in the same transaction in its case in chief. So what this one says is we're going to get reasonable notice as long as we give the prosecutor a, a timely request for that notice. Of course, if you do it at the beginning of the case, it's going to be considered timely. And 404B is limited to evidence that the prosecutor intends to use in its case in chief. So if you're after sentencing evidence or it's, um, you know, like a child sex assault 3837, uh, it's questionable whether 404B covers that. But there are other provisions that do cover it. In Rule of Evidence 609F, it says, uh, notice, evidence of a witness's conviction is not admissible under this rule if, after receiving from the adverse party a timely written request specifying the witness, the proponent of the conviction fails to provide sufficient written notice of intent to use the conviction. Notice is sufficient if it provides a fair opportunity to contest the use of such evidence. So um, Rule 609F, which is uh, relating to impeachment by prior conviction of a crime, these are felonies or crimes of moral turpitude within the last 10 years. Um, if the prosecutor is going to use this, they have to give you sufficient notice, which is usually the crime, the county in which it occurred, and the approximate date that it occurred. That's all they have to do. Uh, but if they don't do that, then when the witness testifies, uh, they can't use evidence of the prior conviction of a crime. So uh, what I do is I request 
notice of any witness the state intends to use, plus I list my client also. Because I want to know if my client's going to testify, does the state intend to use his or her background against the witness? So that's great. Now we got rule 609, but um, it goes on from there. Uh, 37.07, section 3G, and that's quite a mouthful, but 3707 is the Texas sentencing statute. And subsection 3G states, untimely request of the defendant, notice of intent to introduce evidence under this article shall be given in the same manner required by Rule 404B, Texas Rules of Evidence. If the attorney representing the state intends to introduce an extraneous crime or bad act that has not resulted in a final conviction in a court of record or a probated or suspended sentence, notice of that intent is reasonable only if the notice includes the date on which and the county in which the alleged crime or bad act occurred and the name of the alleged victim of the crime or bad act. So that is a lot. But uh, if it's a case involving a crime victim and the state intends to use it for sentencing purposes, they have to name the crime, the alleged crime victim as well. Uh, the statute goes on to state that the requirement under the subsection that the attorney representing the state gives notice applies only if the defendant makes a timely request to the attorney representing the state for the notice. So once again, like driving uh, a nail into wood, they keep telling us over and over again that you can't just do nothing. You shouldn't file a motion, but you do have to file something, and that should be a written request for notice. Let me just look over 3837, which is cases involving alleged sexual offenses. Section three uh, states, the state shall give notice, shall, excuse me, the state shall give the defendant notice of the state's intent to introduce in the case in chief evidence described in subsections one or two, not later than the 30th day before the date of the defendant's trial. And then it goes on to say, in the same manner as the state is required to give notice under Rule 404B, Texas Rules of Evidence. So there you have it. Those are the basic statutes, but we're going to get to Article 3914, the discovery statute, in just a moment. What's important about this is in that kind of case, they have to give you at least 30 days notice. Now, there is no case that says this, but I think you can probably go in and make an argument that everything should be given to you 30 days in advance of trial. I mean, you know, arguably, if somebody has committed uh, a, a sexual offense in the past, you need at least 30 days to be able to dig through the evidence and determine how you're going to contest it. But they, the state has to give you reasonable notice, and you've got to make a written reasonable request for it. So there you have it. That's, that's the platform that we're starting on. And for a long time, that was pretty sufficient. Um, there's a case. I'll, I'll read the case and the site that I think is very, very important because it sort of got the ball rolling in the right direction. It's called Buchanan v. State. That's B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N v. State. The site is 911 Southwest 2nd at page 11. It's from the Court of Criminal Appeals in 1995. Now, this was an aggravated sexual assault and aggravated kidnapping case. Um, and the gist of it was that the notice of the state's intent to introduce evidence that the defendant had previously attempted 
to abduct the same victim, that was not admissible. It was erroneously admitted into evidence. Um, the state argued that it had an open file policy and, uh, you know, the, the defense knew about it. They had seen it. They had access to it. Um, and the Court of Criminal Appeals, in a, in a fairly short opinion, said, look, it's not a question only of whether the defense knew about the evidence. It's a question of whether the defense knew of the state's intent to use it at trial. So what happens if you get surprised like this? Now, you, you may not even say it's a surprise in actuality because you knew about your client's previous criminal record or you knew about uh, previous accusations against your client. The surprise here is that you didn't know the state was going to use it in trial. What do you do in that case? First, Aaron, what would you think as a practitioner? They're introducing this evidence. You haven't gotten notice of it. You've made a timely request for notice. They haven't given it to you. What's the first thing you should do? Object in open court. Yeah, I think so. You got to object on the record. Um, every criminal lawyer, the first thing you have to do is you have to object and you have to object repeatedly. Um, ask for a running objection. If the judge overrules you and the state attempts to introduce the evidence again and you sit on your hands and you're mute and you don't do anything or say anything, well, then uh, you may have waived your right to complain about it on appeal. So you should object, get a ruling, and then ask for a running objection. State all the grounds that you can think of. Hit them with the kitchen sink. If it's extraneous conduct, you object under 404. Um, you object under any of the other statutes that apply and then go on to object that it's a violation of due process under the federal constitution and due course of law on the state constitution. Everything you can possibly think of to object, assert all those objections. But that's not the end of it. Once you object, uh, after you get overruled, you have to um, request a continuance. That's something that's really important to do because you have to give the court an opportunity to cure the error. So you say, Judge, uh, I'd like a postponement of X number of days so I can investigate this new uh, piece of evidence here and incorporate it into my defense. And then, uh, you know, assuming the judge says no, what I like to do is I give progressively shorter requests. I say, I, I want a week. And they say, we're not going to let the jury go home for a week while you study this. And I'll say, all right, five days, four days, three days, two days, one day. And then I end it by saying, judge, is there any amount of time that you would give me as a continuance to allow me to, um, you know, study this new accusation and incorporate it into my defense? Once they say no, then you're good to go. Then the final thing you need to do is you need to show harm. And that is the toughest one to do because how can you show harm? Well, there are some ways you have to say, you know, if I had known that this accusation was going to come up and be part of the state's case in chief or in their sentencing, I would change my strategy differently. I would conduct a different board ire. I would have given an opening statement, be specific, tell them how it would have been different and make the court understand you're being harmed by this. Once you do that, then I think you're preserved and you're good to go.
I wanted to, uh, before we uh, go much further, call to everyone's attention a problematic case. It's a no pet case called Lara, L-A-R-A, the state. Uh, the site is 513 Southwest 3rd, 135. It's uh, from the Houston 14th District Court of Appeals uh, from 2016. It's a no pet case. But in that instance, they had a 3837 violation. Uh, it was also arguably a 3707 sentencing violation. Uh, the state admitted it did not give proper notice despite being requested to do so. And the court ruled that it was harmless error. They noted that there was no evidence of surprise. There was no request for continuance. And the defendant didn't point out how his strategy at trial would have been different. So that's a way to get torpedoed by this case. But for every uh, torpedo, I suppose there is a return volley. And I'd like us to spend the remainder of our time talking about a brand new case that I think, Aaron, changes everything. It's called Ralph Dwayne Watkins versus the state of Texas. It's uh, from the Court of Criminal Appeals, March 3rd, 2021. At the time of this podcast, we still don't have a site for it yet. Um, so it's just a, a slip opinion, a 55-page slip opinion. It's written by Justice David Newell. It's brilliantly reasoned. The 7-2 opinion focuses on um, 33 of 34 state exhibits uh, of a defendant's booking records, judgments, et cetera, in prior convictions. Um, the state really did a bad job here because not only do they not give copies of the prior convictions to the defense attorney who requested them. It was uh, a TCDLA member by the name of Michael Crawford. Um, but they didn't even give the defense attorney access to it. So they really tripped all over themselves. But this is what the defense attorney did that I think made all the difference. In his initial request, he asked for, quote, material, uh, anything that is, quote, material to any matter involved in the action, unquote. That's language right out of Article 3914, the discovery statute. And um, the Court of Criminal Appeals said, well, the defense is entitled to anything that's relevant to the action. Uh, so uh, prior instances of conduct is certainly relevant and uh, they need enough evidence to be able to prepare for it. And that's what 3914 contemplates. So it, it essentially suggests that when you're talking about extraneous conduct, the defense is entitled to not just notice of it, but offense reports, witness statements, any of the evidence that the state or its agents have access to. And unless they do that, then the state has not uh, lived up to its burden of giving proper notice. So I think that's fantastic. Uh, that was argued up and down the appellate chain at the Court of Criminal Appeals level. Uh, a lawyer by the name of uh, Jason Edward Niehaus and another one named Lane Haygood, two very good people who are on the TCDLA amicus committee. And uh, this one, to me, is a grand slam because from now on, uh, we don't have to just settle for extraneous conduct, knowing what it is, who the victim is, the county that it occurred in, and the approximate date. We want to know the underlying evidence that goes along with it so we can contest it at trial. So how about them apples? But you know what happens? Same thing. If you, if you request notice and you don't get it, you got to object. Uh, you got to request a continuance 
And then you've got to show exactly how you were harmed. So this is brand new stuff and it looks great for us, huh? Absolutely. Uh, as soon as I read it a couple of weeks ago, I kind of had to re reread the introduction a few times. Um, interesting was the TCDLA had filed that amicus brief uh, in support of Mr. Watkins. As an aside, is that something you typically see within TCDLA or how often do amicus briefs come from, from TCDLA? That's a terrific question. Uh, anybody listening here, if you're a criminal defense attorney and you practice in Texas and you've got a case that has an important point of law, it's not just your garden variety challenging the sufficiency of the evidence on appeal, but an important point of law, then you are encouraged to contact the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. We have an amicus committee that is set up to handle exactly these kinds of situations. And um, the opinion in Watkins actually mentions the TCDLA amicus brief, uh, I think twice. So uh, it's not as though it doesn't make a difference. When it comes to you know, creating law, new law, we're always hoping to create good law and not bad law. So if you've got a novel point of law, we encourage you to contact us. That's excellent. Considering the opinion was 7-2 with Keller and Yeary filing separate dissenting opinions, you think it'll hold up for that long? I think it's going to hold up uh, for a long time, but I, I think that uh, you know some prosecutors uh, on the appellate level will attempt to walk it back because the way it looks right now is, let's say uh, you're trying a DWI case, a felony DWI with prior DWIs. You don't just get under Watkins the, the prior judgments. That's helpful, but uh, arguably you should be entitled to the offense reports, the video uh, recordings, uh, the blood and breath test results and the underlying data that went into them so that, you know, you can challenge it in court and it becomes even more compelling if it's not a conviction, if it's just an accusation. Like, let's say you had a person charged in a prior robbery and there was a, a photo spread and the photo spread was unfairly su suggestive. Maybe the case hasn't even been fully litigated yet. You can get a copy of that photo spread. And then when it comes around to sentencing, rather than just have them lay this stuff on the jury or the judge as a big stink bomb, you can start to fight back by saying, oh, yeah, well, look at some of the evidence in the case and you can have a trial within a trial. I mean, that really is what all of the rules have contemplated all along. If you want to you know, live up to a defendant's rights under the rule of law, then he or she should have access to things. I want to make one other point about the Watkins case. The Watkins case was very clear in pointing out that the standard for violations of Article 3914, the Texas Discovery Statute, is not due process of law. It's not Brady versus Maryland. You don't have to show that the evidence was exculpatory and that, or that your constitutional rights were violated. Uh, the Watkins case points out that these, this is a statutory right, and it is beyond what the Constitution allows. So this is a brand new world for us. We don't have to just go in there and say, Your Honor, um, my client's constitutional rights are violated. That may be true, and you should always make that objection. But you can say his 3914 rights were violated. And we made a request at the very beginning of the case for full disclosure under Article 3914, including any material to any, anything that's material to any matter involved in the action. Those are the magic words to include in your request. And I think you are good to go. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks so much, Aaron. And thanks everyone for joining us. 
TCDLA Law Podcast is sponsored by the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and producer, but not TCDLA. If you have a question about the law, please do not rely on us. Contact a licensed lawyer in your jurisdiction. If you are a lawyer in good standing and wish to join TCDLA, call us at 512-478-2514 or visit us at tcdla.com.